I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Hey, you. Kevin here. We've got another great podcast coming up. Just wanted you to know that some of your co-listeners have been very generous offering up a few bucks to keep us going. And it looks like there will be two, count them, two new seasons of Serial in the next 12 months. So Rebecca's going to need some help defraying the costs of doing the podcast. You know, studios, old-timey record players, all that stuff adds up. So if you can, swing by CrimeWritersOn.com and give a little something. Thank you so much to the folks at WUNH for letting us record in their studio today. It's kind of a big deal for us to come out here and all be together. One note in this episode, at a couple of points, you may hear some music bleed over from an adjacent studio. It's a college radio station. They like to listen to their music pretty loud. I can live with it. I hope you can, too. Thanks. Now here's the show. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and you're listening to Crime Writers on Serial. This is a special podcast, homage podcast, about the blockbuster spinoff of This American Life. We also talk about continuing developments in the Adnan Syed case, podcasts about the podcast, as well as journalism, pop culture, writing, you name it. Returning this week is my partner in crime, real-life husband and co-author Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. If I didn't come to the studio, I'd probably never see you, Rebecca. (laughs) That sounds about right. Also returning this week is former reporter and defense investigator, licensed PI, maybe the coolest thing on your resume, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Good morning. Finally, also joining us at UNH's studio, we have the man who, as Kevin says, his evil deeds are all in his imagination. Crime fiction author Toby Ball. His latest book is Invisible Streets. Thank you so much for coming back, Toby. Nice to see you in person. So among the Serial-related news made since our last podcast is that Serial Season 2 and 3 are in production. Season 2 will premiere in the fall. Season 3 drops next spring. And Sarah Koenig has made a point to say these stories are really different than the one that we know and love from Serial Season 1. We don't know what either will be about, but what is the likelihood that one of these seasons could be another true crime or another mystery of some kind? What do you think, Toby? I honestly, I have no idea. Okay. Well, what do you think, Kevin? I think there will be some kind of mystery, depending on how you define that kind of broadly, because it's a story that has to, you know, last 12 episodes. But I don't think it's going to be another murder mystery kind of thing where you can Google all the people. And a serial season one was just like lightning in the bottle. And there's just no way you'd want to even attempt to go after that kind of story and top it because you can't. So serial, I'd have to say from here on out, 
I, I'll be surprised at what their stories are, but it's probably not going to be another you know wrong guy in prison kind of story. Just be it, it just you, you can't top the way they did the first one. Laura, do you think that they can do a real time reporting project again? Or do you, do you think with Google, with Reddit, you know, with all the tools out there, like can they do anything that's real time again and, and have it work? Well, I think at this point, with the level of interest from the general public and the listeners, it would be difficult because they would, I think, kind of be interfering in the ongoing reporting, people going out on their own and trying to be their own little version of Nancy Drew. Back to season two, I am really hoping for the Gardner Museum heist. I think that would be a great mystery. It's got obviously a criminal element, but it's a different type of crime story. And there was some news this spring. I want to say it was somebody that actually had the location of one of the paintings. I don't remember the specifics. So that would be a good one. I feel like with that story, every couple of years, there's like the the media does something around like giving us a development to make us think it's sort of like about maybe they're just throwing something out there because they have a lead. And I remember they'll like be searching a house in Rhode Island that doesn't look like it would have millions of dollars of artwork in it. But it seems like a lot of crumbs have been dropped around that. And you were, you were a TV reporter, Kevin. Like why... Is that, you think, an investigative tool that the investigators are sort of putting stuff out to the media once in a while? Well, every time, yeah, there's always usually some proactive techniques because apparently, you know, the guys who did the heist, they're hoping that at some point they'll, you know, make a mistake. So that happens with all the giant cases like that, especially, you know, when you believe there's more than one perpetrator. Eventually someone's going to screw over the next one. I think that's what they're waiting on. But it's like a Jimmy Hoffa kind of case. Where does it go? It'd be great if Sarah could find all those paintings. <laughs> Although I don't know how well the paintings would be on a podcast, but who knows? Well, she could describe the paintings in the podcast. What kind of story do you think it could be, Toby? I mean, do you think it would be the same kind of show if it weren't a crime or a mystery of some kind? Or, or would it, I mean, would you continue to listen to it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the thing that was compelling for me about Serial is that she's just a very good storyteller. And my my guess would be that her judgment would be good enough about what would be compelling over the course of 12 episodes that would have enough suspense built in. I was being a little flip, but I honestly, I it's hard for me to envision outside of kind of true crime what kind of fits into that. And, you know, I think with season one, there was sort of a combination of stuff that she'd done before and then stuff that she was doing on an ongoing basis. Again, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what other subject that would work that well for. I'm a This American Life listener, and I don't know if, if you all listen to This American Life, too. And I can tell you with that show, which is where Sarah Koenig basically has been for a long time, they do switch up their formatics and storytelling you know, sort of themes over and over again. They'll have a show that's like a live musical, and then they'll have a show that's, you know, a true crime story, and then they'll have a show that's about uh, people being attacked by turkeys on Martha's Vineyard, <laughs> which was like one of my favorite episodes of all time, The Poultry Show. And you never know what you're going to get, but it's always really good. So I feel like it's going to be good. Well, I think they had a lot to choose from as far as story ideas, because I think they were inundated with a lot of Pitches. A lot of pitches. I'm sure that 50% of them were like, my cousin's in jail and he didn't do it. But there's other stuff. And you're right. If For those people who know that the DNA of this American life flows through cereal, just got to be a really good story that will sustain itself. 
It could be about a man who's waiting to get a, a kidney transplant. It could be somebody searching for their birth mother. It could be any of these things. And if it's told really well, I think a lot of serial listeners will stay. But I also think a lot of serial mis- listeners who got hooked on the Adnan case and want more of that kind of thing may unsubscribe. Another um, This American Life alum recently began her own podcast, The Mystery Show, with Starley Kine, who you might remember on This American Life as the person who wrote a breakup song and had the help of Phil Collins to do it. That was a very classic This American Life episode. And uh, her podcast is with the Gimlet Podcasting Company, and she solves tiny mysteries that you can't research on the internet, which I think, do you think it's sort of in direct response to this? Well, it could be, but it's also an example of that the mystery does not have to be huge. It's the journey. And, you know, I'll say if you haven't downloaded it yet, subscribe to Mystery Show. One was about trying to trace this uh, unique belt buckle that uh, her friend had found when he was a kid. And just along the way, the people she talks to, you know, they go off, they talk about their, you know, these tangential little places they go can be really compelling. And it shows that you can do a good podcast, make it intriguing, make it a mystery, but it doesn't have to be gigantic. Well, I think it's, you know, it's the it's the whole subject storyteller thing. It's like, is it the storyteller that makes it compelling? And I think, you know, really good storyteller can make some pretty seemingly bland topics pretty compelling. Well, that's the public radio way, right? Like, <laughs> let's, let's talk about this lady who's doing this thing that we will never meet and never do. But then let's be talking about it for seven days afterwards because it was done so well that we – I mean, that's sort of the DNA of public radio. So I'm going to make a quick transition here and um, recuse myself as moderator for part of this. A few weeks ago, I found out that Rabia Chaudhry, Susan Simpson, and Colin Miller actually have been listening to our podcast. Uh, Rabia reached out to me. As you know, I interviewed her on this podcast a couple of months ago and asked me to weigh in on the production of their podcast, Undisclosed, where they are revealing new developments and evidence in the Adnan Syed case and the investigation uh, from 15 years ago. So I'm not part of the legal team in any official capacity. I'm really just talking with them about production stuff. That being said, I don't think it would be fair to talk about Undisclosed and be the moderator and be in charge of this part of discussion. So I'm going to hand it over to Kevin for this right, You get of out of that chair. <laughs> make a big deal out of moving around in the studio. Is this in stereo so that we'll be able to hear him traverse <laughs> no, the studio? We just stuck her in the box that they use on Family Feud when the other person goes for the, you know, the lightning round so they don't hear their... Uh, Keep an eye on your levels there, Mr. Hill. Okay, yeah. Okay, so for full disclosure about undisclosed, I'm going to drive the car. Now, Toby and Laura, we talked about the lividity evidence before on this podcast. If undisclosed interpretation of that evidence is correct, is it enough in your mind to say that the science doesn't fit the state's case? Um, yeah. I mean, I think the state's case for a while now has been pretty much blown up. You know, I think that's just more more fuel to that fire. Laura, what do you think? Absolutely. I, I mean, this goes back to way back when we were talking about the Best Buy parking lot and how it seemed so inconceivable that this murder could have taken place quickly in the Best Buy parking lot with nobody having seen it. I think knowing that Hay was on her stomach for 8 to 12 hours in that position after she was killed really raises a lot of questions about where the actual crime scene was, how she was actually killed. There was that sort of hint about possible drug overdose based on the sort of orange 
tinted sort of spittle, I guess, that was on her clothing. But I think this, you know, certainly raises a lot of questions as to the timeline. It it doesn't fit the timeline, the seven o'clock burial time. The only thing I could think from that is perhaps Adnan and or Jay were scoping out a burial site at seven o'clock, and that's why their cell phone pinged at that time. But uh, the time of, to get a dead body into the ground on its side, yes. just it doesn't fit. And un, unlike the whether or not there's a payphone at Best Buy, to me, this is huge. It's, it's if, the inter, if they're interpreting the evidence correctly, it, it scientifically shows this isn't how it happened. Doesn't say that it wasn't Jay or, or it wasn't Adnan, but it just means if they're correct, you can't believe anything about the timeline and the cell phone evidence and Asia in the library. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't add up. To me, I think this is really huge. Yeah, I agree. And I think I, I agree with who was it, the evidence uh, professor who was talking about how egregious. Colin. Yes, it was so egregious that the defense never had an outside expert review the autopsy findings because this sounds like it wasn't really that hard to figure out when you looked at the autopsy findings. And had they actually presented this evidence at trial, it would have completely contradicted the state's case. We even forget presenting it at trial. What if Sarah Kanan had had presented the lividity evidence in serial? Now, we don't know if she had it or not, whether she was aware. But if she had, would that have not been a game changer for the narrative? I mean, for, for, the, for everything. Yeah, I think so. Again, it seems like so much time has passed since the end of, of Serial and so many things have come out. But at the end, you know, there was a lot of did he or didn't he or, or did she kind of make the case for his innocence and, or at least for things not happening the way the prosecution said they did. And I think this certainly does make that case. I mean, I think what's kind of interesting to me, the two podcasts are really at different purposes, whereas Sarah was really telling a story. She would either keep things or, or, or not keep things based on what kind of worked for the story. And, you know, undiscloses really seems like a brief for the defense. And as such, I mean, it seems like they're throwing everything. Like at this point, it seems like there's nothing about the prosecution's theory that can be substantiated at all, which is one of my, it's not really an issue with the Undisclosed podcast, but with the way we're getting information is that it seems like it would be helpful to me to hear the other side of this argument. Laura, what do you think? If that little bit of evidence about lividity was thrown out in serial, would it change the way that we, you know, that we perceive the case? I mean, that just seems like when we spent, you know, a whole episode on Best Buy and the, and the drive, you know, the drive time. I mean, that just seems to me like in my case, if I had been on the jury, I know now I would say, uh, I, I, I could not convict based on that. What do you think? Oh, I think it would have changed the narrative of Serial because this would have been kind of one of those big bombshells that we were waiting for mm-hmm. that would have swayed you uh, one way or another. And I, like Toby said, I would have liked to hear what the prosecution had to say in response to this evidence because it just doesn't make sense at all. It really, I mean, now I'm even more curious as to where she was killed and where she was lying flat for 8 to 12 hours. I mean, I think she said, the the woman that I could hardly hear there, the medical examiner who said she was buried 8 to 12 hours after her death, you know, that, that certainly adds even more possibilities to what happened in this case. Uh, but I think if it was introduced in serial, it would have been the thing that everybody was talking about. One other thing that I want to get your take on when we talk about discovery, the whole thing about the photographs 
I, I see you're rolling your eyes. Oh, Isn't that, that another sort me, of amazing thing? That made me wild when I heard that. That is absolutely ridiculous that they did not provide reciprocal discovery and the photographs. That's pretty much 101, you know, when you get a case, especially a homicide case, they give you all the CDs or printed out photos of the full autopsy and the crime scene. And that's something that you really need in order to be able to evaluate the case. That just seemed, you know, just shady. But I think this goes back to Baltimore and just the level of crime in Baltimore and the number of cases that they're clearing from their list and they don't have time. And if they don't have a defense attorney that's there really pushing it and litigating it in court and filing a motion with the court for additional discovery that has not been provided, I, I can see why they didn't get it. But I just think it's absurd that they didn't turn over autopsy and photos. And you have two hours. Yeah. Go take a look. That's, and by the way, later on, oh, there's a whole bunch of other photos we didn't photos. show you. Oh, that was absolutely absurd. Because if you're pulling f- some photos out of the pile... Yeah. You want those photos for some reason, either because maybe because they're the best ones or they're the one. I don't know. Yeah, that's absurd. That blew me away. Yeah, me too. And I know you had to wait like 50 or 60 minutes into that episode to find that. But again, that's another thing that I thought would just would just, you know, rattle, especially you, Laura. Oh, yeah, I was I was fired up. I mean, I, I think I've said this before. But I think if they realized that there was going to be a really popular podcast about this particular investigation, they probably would have done things a lot differently. I think they sort of sized up what they had there, kind of had Adnan for sort of a domestic violence murder case, and just kind of were like, okay, this one's an easy one. Uh, We'll tie it up as quickly as possible, move on to some harder things. We've cleared it. And now that, you know, smart people are spending a lot of time taking a look at it, it's like, well, you know, Tons of corners were cut. In Baltimore, they call it a dunker, like the slam dunk. It's yeah. not a whodunit. I just think of the of the wire and that sort of heavy uh, guy who was in charge of the detectives <laughs> in there and like what his attitude was when guys would get tough <laughs> cases and you'd just be laughing at them. You know, it, it, it's easy to see that mentality. And I would like to, again, thank my fellow podcasters for getting me up with the times. I'm now watching The Wire. Uh, up, I with be, up with the up times, with the like times up with ni- I know, and apparently it came out in 2002. Oh, but, uh, you know, now I have premium cable and all. I'm really, it's a whole new world. You can envision the streets of Baltimore now. That, uh, I was just in Baltimore, and I would just, like, as an aside, I asked every taxi driver, waitstaff person, and hotel person about cereal. Nobody had even heard of this really? case. Nobody had heard of Adnan. And that really showed me just how, you know, crime there, they're like oblivious to it because it's just so prevalent. They knew where Lincoln Park was, though. Well, I wanted to go on a tour. I I got in an Uber and I was going to take a tour, but nobody else would go with me. So (laughs) (laughs) Toby would have gone with you. You should have let us know. Yeah. Okay. So, guys, one more thing undisclosed. There is so much going on in that podcast. It's such a deep dive. Is it too much for the average listener? Toby, what do you think? Well, it's tough for me, and and part of it is I don't sort of sit down and just listen to a podcast. I'm driving around in my car, or I'm doing something else. I'm I'm washing the dishes, uh, which I do, and uh, and so it's hard because you know you kind of want to take notes. And again, it's sort of the difference between that and serial, where serial is really a story, and this seems more like a, a report. And I, I was when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the report from the 9-11 Commission and how it seemed like the sort of brilliant move that they did is they turned the report into kind of a narrative that read like a story. Mm-hmm, yes. So you just you could flip through it and it was it was 
it kind of followed. Like you didn't feel like you were reading a report. So that's really my only issue. I mean, there's a lot of great information and it's, uh, you know, it's probably hard to pack that amount of information to that short a time without coming off that way. If you're doing something else and listening to it, I, I don't know how you can possibly keep everything straight in your mind. What do you think, Laura? Is it too much? I mean, too deep? Yeah, it's honestly, it, it's, I consider myself a somewhat intelligent person and I am, if I don't take notes, I cannot remember everything they talked about. It is, it's just too many details. But it, it, it reminds me of, like I've said before, being in the case conferences that I used to sit in on with the defense attorneys when they dissected a case to the level of minutia, you know, that they would need before presenting it at court. I, you know, this week I took notes as I was listening on my iPad because if I don't take notes, I can't remember what they talked about. And they did. I noticed there's some music now that kind of helps break up the sections which makes it a little bit easier to sort of follow and with the flow. But it just, it's hard for me, like Toby, I'm kind of listening as I'm in the kitchen on the weekend, doing dishes, whatever, you know. I, I can't remember some of the specifics later, and it's it's hard for me to follow. But I love some of the details. I just maybe breaking them up into smaller chunks might help somebody like me digest them a little yeah, bit better. Yeah, we're, we're listening to that podcast differently than most of the other people. Yes. Yes. Because of this, um, and you, for me, it, it, it's like um like a like a really rich chocolate cake. It's like really good, but like afterwards, it's like, oh man, that was so heavy. I can't believe I ate that whole thing. I mean, that, that's how I feel about it. It's all really good. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many like big points, and then they talk, they go deep into some of the little points. Sometimes it's hard for me to like, okay, pick out what's really great. And I think we discovered sort of at the end of that last episode. Again, all that. You know, the autopsy stuff was, you know, really interesting. I would uh, like to say, you know, little tidbits, though, and I, I'm glad I have this little tidbit now. One week in air equal to eight weeks in dirt. That was a nice little tidbit that I picked up. I don't know when I'll drop that in conversation, <laughs> but I'm glad I know it. Well, you know, the goldfish, yeah. you, you never you never know in the backyard. Yeah, we did just have to bury our office fish, so that was good to know. Um, so I'm going to turn the microphone on Rebecca just for a second about this. And again, full disclosure, Rebecca is working with that team on production stuff, not on any of the content. So she's she's actually just kind of getting a preview of it a couple of days before the rest of us do. So she she's not influencing that. But I think that despite that, I think it's okay to ask you, Rebecca, what do you think the most important things that were brought out in that podcast well, I think that the um, lividity and rigor mortis stuff is very interesting. I think that everything they are doing points to the state's narrative. It points to the fact that what the state brought at trial really doesn't jive with evidence that can still be sort of uncovered and discovered, you know, 15 years later. I know that the lividity thing is a bombshell. I think a lot about the small things along the way, and I hate to use fiction as a reference, but I also think about The Wire a lot when I sort of think about the fact that they locked in to Adnan as their suspect. And then something that um, I asked them on this last addendum episode, because it really popped out to me, was why would the detectives ask that question how did Adnan open the trunk for the trunk pop? It was because they knew there was an answer that they wanted that fit the story, which was the keys answer. And they, they knew the trunk opened with keys because they, you know, they sort of had so it, it, that all of those little things. They 
they add up. What they add up to for me, though, isn't necessarily Adnan's innocence because they haven't offered any alternative explanation. They haven't offered any evidence that shows that Adnan didn't do it. They've only offered evidence that shows, and I think rightly so, because they're looking at the defense and they're looking at the investigation, that the state bungled the investigation and bungled the trial. A lot of reasonable doubt. A lot of reasonable doubt. Um, I would say grounds for a new trial, I think, is like broad. Even a lot of people who believe Adnan's guilty you know, we'll acknowledge, you know, the trial was not a good trial. Evidence was bad. It didn't jive with science. It didn't jive with all these other details. You know, Jay was an unreliable star witness. The other thing that came out that, I don't know, it sort of shifted me a little bit. We talked a lot about the intercept interviews after they happened. And, you know, Rabia tends to speculate more than Colin and Susan do. They're both coming at this very much from a puzzle you know, logic. You know, Susan really loves dissecting the investigation. Colin just sort of loves the puzzle and the evidence stuff. Robbie is an advocate. We know that. But sometimes she floats things that really make me think. And the one that she put out there about the Intercept interview, I kind of assume that Jay talked to Natasha Vargas Cooper without his lawyer in the room. I think I said that on this podcast. I actually no longer think that's the case. I mean, uh, Jay's lawyer was the one who arranged these interviews. There's no reason to believe. And who was Jay's lawyer? Remind us from the serial. The one that Yurik assigned to him. Yeah. So all these years later, he still has the attorney and she that the also, prosecutor got. Yes. Yeah. And it seems she also arranged the interview that Natasha Vargas Cooper had with Yurik. Yes, that makes sense. It does make sense that this shifting narrative could be a preparation for an upcoming new trial. It, it makes it makes kind of sense to me. I mean, yeah, Yurik isn't a prosecutor, though. but Right. But if they're going to call Jay up and say and discredit all the things that he said, if he said something new, they can point to these new things that he said. I don't know. I thought that was really, really interesting. I think it speaks to continuing legal strategy around this. We assume that all the legal strategy is coming from the Adnan advocates. You know, we heard the news that Barry Sheck has joined the um, the defense team now, and you know he's the one who founded the Innocence Project. Yeah. But so we want to hear what they're up to. That's an interesting. thing. I do too. I yeah. want to hear a That's lot of what other they're track. up to. Yeah. yeah, and but you know they have other sort of ideas about when you should put out information and when you shouldn't. So I think that that's why that's not jiving. What we're hearing undisclosed. But you know I think it's all interesting. I also agree that. It's a little much all at once, but I, I get what they're doing. Yeah, and uh, in the, the courts right now, there was a win for Adnan. It looks like uh, they will be able to um, go ahead with contemplating whether or not they can bring in Asia McLean's testimony and then reevaluate whether he can get some post-conviction relief. Or evaluate whether or not the state is willing to go through with another trial given all of this information that's been put out there. You know, will the state be willing to do a trial knowing that their lividity evidence was bad, knowing that they're maybe they'll look at this pile and say, let's do an Alfred plea? Well, I'd say that if you you read the the state's response to the appeal that Toby wants to hear a little more about what their side is, they make a good case refuting a lot of the stuff and showing, you know, here's the biggest thing. Adnan couldn't remember that afternoon, right? That's episode one of Serial. But, oh, but he does remember seeing Asia McLean in the library at two whatever. Who knows? Okay, so that's going to do it for the podcast part where we talk about the podcast. The podcastception. Podcastception. And I'm going to turn things back over to Rebecca. Okay. I'm back where I belong over here. All right. So we are going to talk a little bit about our favorite true crime reads this episode. I wanted to touch on one thing first that's come up this week, I think, especially 
we talk a lot about journalism on this podcast because there's a lot of debate around the journalism of true crime surrounding serial. And then, of course, we talked about Jinx and there was a lot of discussion around whether or not that was journalism or not, you know, with that sort of movie making style. Um, This week, you know, a very, very big story in the news was this shooting in the South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina church. Nine people died and the shooter has been arrested. His name is Dylan Roof. And one of the things that's come up today, and actually we were listening to the radio this morning on the way over to the studio, journalists are now, seem to be on this line where some believe, and they'll say very transparently, we don't want to say the name of the shooter and uh, sort of validate, you know, his position. We don't want to propagate this idea that you get attention if you do this. Or they'll say, as we heard on the way over, we're going to say the names of the nine victims before we say the name of the shooter. Laura, I'm going to come to you first. As a reporter, when you hear journalists covering big stories and you hear them transparently making decisions like this to the audience, does that sort of make you have any thoughts as somebody who's like a trained reporter and, you know, used to reporting stories big and small? Yeah, it really sort of makes me feel that uh, the journalism profession is sort of bowing to societal pressures in this area. You know, as a society, people are sick of all the attention that people are getting for these mass murders. And, you know, I, I can see how they're doing it. I don't necessarily agree. I think, you know, as journalists, uh, if we have the information, we should report it. And, you know, if society and other people want to say, you know, we don't want to give as much notoriety to these people, that's great. But as journalists, it's our job to tell the story. So I I would disagree with leaving the name of the shooter out, even though I understand why people would do that. Toby, as a news consumer, do you have an opinion as to whether or not you you should name the shooter in a mass shooting event and in front of the victim's names or behind them? I guess I have two reactions to it. One is which I mean, you cannot name them, but everybody's going to know. I mean, that's that's the internet now. I mean, somebody will find out. It'll be on the internet, and then it'll spread. The second thing is identifying the name of the person doesn't seem to me to be giving them much of a platform. I think like um, was it Anders Breivik, who was uh, the guy in in Norway, like he had a whole manifesto, and in that in that case, if you're if you're sort of giving a platform for his you know, insane beliefs, that's one thing. But but saying, we, we've caught the guy, this is his name, to me, that's, that's, that's not really, I don't think that's given him much of a platform. There seem to be two fronts, and Kevin, I'll, I'll throw this question your way. There seem to be two fronts here in journalism. I feel like we're sort of at this very important crossroads. On the one hand, you have really outlets with like old school journalistic tenets, but in new media sort of rising up. You have the Glenn Greenwald sort of coming up and saying, this is important. We're reporting it. Even if you say we shouldn't, we are going to report it. On the other hand, you have the Today Show and what happened where we heard on the Diane Reem show this morning about the not wanting to offend, sort of not wanting to validate kind of thinking, you know, that one of the hosts may have. Where are you on this line? I know we've talked about this at home a little bit sometimes, and we talked about this with a case in New Hampshire where, you know, a victim was named and then the victim wasn't named anymore. We had a little debate over it. Where do you stand? Well, you, I think you're describing, you know, the real push and pull here between, you know, where where uh, traditional or old media is going and having to, you know, deal with the fact not just not it's not just the technology that you can go on Twitter and you can report, you could vet the fact that, okay, five people have been shot, six people have been shot, versus, you know, the guy across the street who starts going. I remember, you know, we saw on Twitter that Gabby Giffords was dead. And because that NPR reported that Gabby Giffords was dead. Yeah, well, I, yeah. Um, 
but I, I'm not for I'm not for secret arrests. I, I don't believe that's that, that should be done. I I think what people are responding to is the weariness that this kind of story keeps happening. The it seems like the motivations in this shooting is to start a race war and the other you know other one is it's uh it's because uh, i was bullied as a kid and the other one is about mental health and another one is about the prevalence of guns and and you can't examine this without kind of learning about the shooter I haven't heard any of the shooters. I mean, the last one I can think of is, is uh, Mark David Chapman, who killed John Lennon, who openly said he thought that would make him famous, and, and John Hinckley Jr. All these other sort of mass shootings, I can tell you, I remember some of the stuff. They're so prevalent. If they were pub trivia questions, I couldn't get the names right on a lot of them. Not even the Columbine shooters? Harris no, there and Klebold? There was a Klebold. Yeah, see, like, I don't even... You know, famous, eh, infamous. So you're, you're saying there's just no reason for it then? There's, there's, no, there's no reason to not, to not give the names. Okay. Another big journalism question this week. Brian Williams is back, ostensibly, in a new role in a MSNBC. He came out this morning with his big apology interview with Matt Lauer. Very softball interview, I think. I don't know if you agree with me, Kevin. You watched it also. Brian Williams now is admitting to having lied, exaggerating stories about things that happened to him while reporting, sort of telling stories to late night TV hosts, you know, over the periods of time those stories may be becoming true in his mind and him repeating them. Before this, he was a much beloved anchor of a national news broadcast. Can he resume a prominent role in journalism or should he move on to something else? What do you think, Toby? I guess I don't have any really strong feelings about it. Uh, I think the the standard to which we hold different journalists is is kind of all over the place. I mean, I think some people get away with sort of egregious either mistakes or intentional shadings of truth. And then other people will go on a talk show and kind of enhance a story about something that happened to them. Um, and, and they just they get treated in, in completely different ways. So you know, I think in some ways, being the anchor for one of the the three networks, I think you're supposed to be like this Walter Cronkite sort of voice of authority and morality and honesty. And so maybe in that particular position, it would be tough. But, you know, to have him be doing, you know, MSNBC at four o'clock in the afternoon, I don't see why he couldn't like be the host of that. But Laura, weren't you trained when when you went to school and when you studied journalism, weren't you trained that like you can never be the subject of a story and then be a journalist? I mean, isn't that like sort of a basic thing? Yeah, I mean, it is it is definitely something that is surprising. But I was just thinking of, you know, we've seen this before. Mike Barnacle was a very beloved columnist in Boston who was caught a number of years ago, I think um, the year I graduated from college, adding some things to columns that weren't true. And he's now a regular contributor on certain TV shows. So he's made a comeback, mm-hmm. but it took some time. But he, he's also... I mean, he's a guest. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, he's not in the but same he's... sort of role of authority that I think. I mean, Dan Rather had another kind of bizarre Kenneth, what's the frequency, you know, where he was supposedly abducted. And I, I think that was in what? the middle of his career. Well, I mean, I think CBS always felt like that they were stuck with Dan Rather. I mean, I think that's pretty much within the industry. People know that. Really? Yeah. They, you know, they thought that Dan Rather was the suitable successor to Walter Cronkite. And. They just, you know, they try to. Just remember, uh, 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 like the year where they tried to put him in a sweater, 
like to make him be softer on TV. And I think that when they had a chance to get rid of him, I think they were ready to move along. I I really like Brian Williams. I really liked getting my news from Brian Williams. And I thought that I, I don't know if how much of the the script writing he does or whether it's, you know, other editors there, but it just very conversational and Lester Holt has done good with that. I just, you know, watching the interview, I just, he wouldn't say the word lie. Right. And I can't tell, you know, and he, he just, for a guy who's done a lot of interviews and tried to get people from slipping out of that, I just, I, you know, can you just say, I, I lied to myself. You talk about his ego, but you know, it's just, I, yeah, I came to believe that that was true. Or, you know, I, I really wanted to make myself sound bigger than I was. And I did that. I think he could probably still have a place in journalism, but uh, he, he'll probably never shake that off. Maybe he'll have a I, podcast. <laughs> I, I guess my my only other thought is that I think th- things have changed quite a bit. I don't I don't think being the news anchor for one of the big three networks is nearly what it used to be because I, I think a lot of people don't get their news that way. As a matter of fact, I don't think I could name any of the three network news anchors right now. Well, there's Lester Holt now. Lester Holt. <laughs> who, who are the other two? Uh, yeah, who are the other two? Diane Sawyer Diane left, Sawyer who's, so who's not Diane Sawyer anymore. It's uh, Bob Simmons, I think. Uh, Bob CBS. Simmons. Who's that? On CBS. But you know who Glenn Greenwald is? Yeah, but he's not a... No, he's not. And I think yeah. that that speaks to what we talked about earlier, the rise of the formidable journalist coming from a new media outlet. You know, the Sarah Koenig, the... the Len Greenwald, the the people we talk about are not sitting in anchor chairs anymore. Right. 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 Although I would, Glenn Greenwald broke perhaps the biggest story of the last ten years with Edward Snowden, and I don't think there's anybody who's a network chair or you know Sarah Koenig or whatever who, who's done the kind of journalism that he has. I mean, he's really sort of risen to the top based purely on actually what we consider to be journalism. Like Sarah, for for all the good stuff that she does, it seems like she's more of a storyteller than a than a newsbreaker. I think Kevin seems dubious about this. No, no, no. I was just thinking um, techniques will change, the medium will change, principles cannot change. So again, the idea is just because I can tweet it out as fast as possible doesn't mean that you should. Moving on, one of the things that we hope to talk about today, and I think we should touch on it. I mean, it's summer. I mean, it's warm out now, finally, here in New Hampshire. For those of you living in other parts of the country, we endured pretty much an icebox all winter long, and we are not complaining yet about the hot weather, even though we usually start complaining the moment it arrives. And that means it's going to be reading time soon. I have so little time to read. I really love when people that I love listening to give their book picks. And I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about crime, fiction, nonfiction, and other books today. So I asked you all to come with three book picks, a true crime or nonfiction book, a fiction book, and then a third category, which was a little more amorphous, a book that you hope to read, a book that maybe inspired you, or just a book that you kind of want to tackle. So let's start with the true crime. Um, I'm going to start with you, Laura. What was your true crime pick, recommended read for listeners of this podcast and all people who might be interested in such a thing? Well, this is an oldie but a goodie. The Corpse Had a Familiar Face by Edna Buchanan. Edna was a longtime police reporter for the Miami Herald, and she's fantastic. She has written a couple of true crime, you call them true crime, they're really nonfiction books about her experiences as a reporter. And then she had a spin-off fictional 
series based on a protagonist that was a reporter for the local newspaper down there. And I'll just read you the first part. I'll read you a couple sentences so you can get the flavor. The, uh, it's just basically, basically about so many murders that she covered. She covered 5,000 violent deaths in her time as a reporter, and 3,000 of those were murders. And she says, the crime that inevitably intrigues me the most is murder. It's so final. At a fresh murder scene, you can smell the blood and hear the screams. Years later, they still echo in my mind. Unsolved murders are unfinished stories. The scenes of the crimes may change over the years. Highways are built over them. Buildings are torn down. Houses are sold. I drive by and wonder if the new occupants, as they go about their daily lives, ever sense what happened there. Do they know, or am I the only one who still remembers? Wow. Intense. All right, try to follow that one up, Toby. <laughs> what is your nonfiction true crime book pick? My pick is People Who Eat Darkness by Richard Lloyd Perry. I love that book so much. Yeah, it's 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 really good. It, it's basically about the story of a young British woman named Lucy Blackman who uh, disappeared in 2000. She'd gone to Tokyo and was working as a hostess in a hostess club in Tokyo. And it's a, it's a really interesting book in that it explores sort of the culture around Japanese hostess clubs and around the women, especially the Western women who go over to work in them. And then there's also the whodunit part where he's exploring, you know, what, what happened to Lucy Blackman. And I read about two or three years ago, but there's also some stuff about the Japanese legal system and the investigation that was done into her disappearance. And then he does his own work and it's it's just extremely well written and it's one you know it reads like like really good fiction like I couldn't put it down but he's in it and he actually yeah. is very transparent about the reporting he's doing in it which I love that aspect of it and that's something that's hard to get your publisher to do so I I just think it was just really I completely agree with you super well done people who eat darkness pick it up read it Kevin what is your true crime nonfiction pick well this is what I'd like to read this uh, this summer I know my what I will be reading is our manuscript <laughs> about seven or eight times and you know not for rewriting fun. it yeah rewriting it so uh, dark art dropping in March 2016 okay uh, what I would like to read is the onion field by Joseph Wamba, which is one of those classics. And I think it, it comes from an era where uh, true crime was not genreized. Um, it was seen as a uh, compelling nonfiction tale about crime. And, you know, some of the, you know, the fatal vision, burning bed era of stuff. This looks like a great one I've always wanted to read. So my pick that I will be reading is The Onion Field. My nonfiction true crime pick is Lost Girls by Bob Colker. Again, came out a couple of years ago. It's about the unsolved, still unsolved case of the Long Island serial killer. Bob Colker is an excellent reporter. He uh, literally looks very much like people who eat darkness at the industry around how prostitution has evolved and changed with the advent of Craigslist and how it is just very normal people from very normal backgrounds going into this line of work. And he digs very deeply into the lives of all the victims in a way that makes it a great, great read. Um, I'm going to move on to fiction. I'm just going to throw my pick out there and then I'll go around the table. Um, I'm really torn here. Uh, uh, I'm going to go with this pair of books by Megan Abbott, uh, Dare Me and the Fever, two noir fiction novels based around teenage lives, one around a group of cheerleaders, one around a group of girls in an upstate New York high school. Nobody captures noir through the minds of young people 
like Megan Abbott. If you haven't read her work, I recommend them highly. The book Dare Me and the book The Fever, which is her most recent novel. Very, very highly recommended both of those books. Both about to become TV series. And both about to become TV series and or uh, HBO multi-parts, which I couldn't be happier for Megan. She's a super talented writer. And once you read these books, you'll want to go back and read all of her back catalog, which is something you should do anyway. What is your fiction pick, Toby? Uh, My fiction pick is uh, A Place of Execution by Val McDermott. It's a standalone. She also writes a series. It's really a procedural. It takes place in sort of the mid to late 60s in a sort of tiny, sort of out of the way uh, village in northern England. It's extremely atmospheric. It's extremely well written. Again, it's another one of those. It's a page turner. You can't put it down. But the the sort of writing and plotting and atmosphere, I, I kind of felt like we're a step above most of what you read. And we will be posting all of our book picks on our website, crimewriterson.com. So you can go there and get links to all these books and just order them from your local bookseller or from Amazon if you'd like or wherever you buy your fine book buying stuff. Okay, Kevin, what is your fiction pick? I'm going to be reading this summer Drizzled with Death by Jesse Crockett. It's wait, wait, wait. What is it called? Drizzled with Death. It's a new salad dressing recipe that no, I No, no, actually, it's, a, it's um, the first in her series of uh, Sugar Grove Mysteries. It's uh, the protagonist is a uh, maple sugarer who lives in New England who gets into all sorts of murderous things. I call it syrup she wrote. Um, so uh, Jesse is a syrup great- Syrup she boiled. <laughs> Jesse's a great author from around here, and uh, you know, I wish her a lot of luck. And so I want to dig into her books, and I'd, I'd recommend people do that. If you if you like the a, a series, uh, get in on this one that's early. She's got three out. Fourth will be out soon. So Drizzled with Death. All right. How about you, Laura? What is your fiction pick? Uh, my fiction pick is actually something I read a few years ago, The Light in the Ruins, Chris Bojalian. He lives in Vermont. This kind of breaks the mold a little bit from other books of his that I've read, like Midwives, Um this is really a murder mystery, uh, and it's set. It's also historical fiction, which I love. And there's a little romance thrown in there as well. Uh, you really can't beat a book where the opening scene uh, is somebody having their heart ripped out by a serial killer. So it's set in Tuscany. Uh, it begins in 1955 and centers around a very wealthy family that were Nazi sympathizers during the war and goes back and forth between 1955 and 1943. Very interesting, the people that are involved. And there is a female police investigator who surfaces in 1955 um, who has a very interesting backstory. Um, This also had a really good twist at the end, uh, which is something that I always love. Got to love a good twist at the end. I find that a lot of times books now, and um, this has really been one of my complaints about Gillian Flynn's books, is that they sort of pace along really, really well. And then there's a twist and then it's over. And like, I I really think that well done twist that that really gets you and then you have enough time to sort of enjoy what just happened is the way to go. Is this is this that kind of twist at the end, the more satisfying kind? This is. And the last book that I read by this author, and I wish I could remember the name, it was set in Vermont, and it was about a girl that was a competitive cycler. The twist in that book I never saw coming. And that, you know, that's one of my things. I really hate it when I can see what the twist is going to be, and I did not see it coming um, in either of these books. Toby, let's move on to the amorphous third category. You have an unusual pick here that I can't wait to hear about. Is this a nonfiction book that you have picked here? Which book are we talking about? The Poets one? Financial Lives of the Poets. (laughs) Yes. Uh, (laughs) Financial Lives of the Poets by Jess Walter. It is fiction. It's a great book. And, uh, you know, I recommend it to, to everybody. 
it's basically the story of a guy who, during the sort of the the recession of the aughts, leaves his job at a newspaper to follow his dream, which is to start a website that combines poetry with financial advice. Hmm. And surprisingly, it fails. It's a very, I thought, insightful, funny, also sad look at that period of the 2000s that has a lot more insight than a lot of other more sort of glorified books that that I feel like tried a lot harder. I mean, it's not a long book. It's it's a pretty quick read, but I've recommended it to a lot of people, and I've never had anybody come back and, and say they didn't like it. Buy low, sell high. All these junk bonds make me cry. <laughs> hey, that's pretty good. Yeah, I could do that. <laughs> Kevin, what is your third book pick? Look, the, the one I'm going to be reading this summer, and I think everybody will be, is Go Set a Watchman by Harper Lee. Um, you know, a, a sequel to a classic to Kill a Mockingbird, and I've been uh, catching up on the book that I should have read when I was in high school, so I can be uh, out there and looking cool on the beach or lakeside with the book that uh, everybody's going to be reading, everybody's going to be talking about. So you don't need to hear it from me, but, you know, go set a watchman. That's something I'm looking forward to. What about you, Laura? What is your third book pick? In the spirit of the summer season and the growing season, uh, it's Animal Vegetable Miracle by Barbara Kingsolver. This is a nonfiction book that she wrote about her family's journey to live off food that was locally produced for a year. And they moved to the old family farm in Appalachia and grew uh, most of what they ate or bought it locally. And this kind of, you know, a few years ago, I got a little bit over the top with this, and I've since scaled it back a little. Uh, But it was really interesting to read about her family's journey and uh, how they survived, you know, not eating things like bananas, which um, they were not allowed to eat. Since then, I've toned it down. I, I did get a little wild. I tried to make a chocolate pudding out of avocados, which I've I named. saw that on your Instagram. Yeah. Chocomole, <laughs> I do not recommend it. But, you know, get out, grow some tomatoes in your garden, enjoy the summer. I have to say, one of my, let's just talk about our Twitter handles really quick, because what you will find on Laura Brickers, to me, is extremely interesting. This former defense investigator, licensed PI, will periscope from her garden. It's one of yes. my favorite things about her Twitter. And you can be found on Twitter at Laura Bricker. Laura Bricker. That's L A R A. Bricker. Uh, Okay, we'll give the rest of your Twitter handles at the end. So uh, my third book pick, actually, I have a little book called The Vaults on my shelf that Toby Ball wrote and handed to me when we recorded our podcast. Who's that? (laughs) A couple of months ago. And it's like the next one that I'm like dying to read. But every time I start, a work project comes up. So that is my first committed book that I am going to read this summer. I just want to kind of get into another area. I feel like we wouldn't be doing our jobs as podcasters who love podcasting if we also didn't do some podcasts recommendations. And I've discovered a great one recently that I've been telling everyone about. I almost think it was a podcast made by accident. And that is the show PBS Frontline, which now has started to release their TV show audio as a podcast. And it really, really works. It is basically just these same deeply reported stories about things like the CIA's hunt for Osama bin Laden or the trouble with salmonella in chicken factories. And I actually like it better as an audio podcast. And I made the mistake last weekend of listening to like six of these episodes in a row and ended up getting like really angry with the government. But um, anyway, I highly recommend listening to the PBS Frontline Audiocast. It is an outstanding 
podcast. Uh, Kevin, do you have a favorite podcast? Yeah, like I mentioned earlier uh, the Mystery Show with Starly Kind, and I'd say the first episode probably isn't its strongest. I'd just say jump to episode three, but it's really great. Episode two, man. Yeah, I mean, I'll just, with the the, <laughs> the four of us would enjoy episode two because it's about uh, a uh, a midlist author who had a book that didn't do well, and one day she happened to see a photograph of Britney Spears leaving a restaurant with her book. And the mystery is, did she enjoy it? Uh, Starly Kind goes through all sorts of, you know, funny and sweet ways of, like, solving these little tiny mysteries. I think it's maybe the polar opposite of serial, but it's it's really satisfying. It's sort of like the Parks and Rec of the serial genre is the way that I've come to think about it. Laura, what about you? Oldie buddy goodie here. I listen to The Moth... uh, many, many days while I'm having my Saturday afternoon cleaning ritual. And I would encourage everybody to look up my personal all-time favorite storyteller, Edgar Oliver, who has the absolute best voice. He's like, uh, sounds like Count Dracula. He's from Transylvania. And his life story is absolutely amazing. I have listened to him do his, I think there's two or three different recordings of him through the moth. I've listened to them over and over again. I just can't get enough of this guy's voice. He's an incredible storyteller. I agree with you. Toby, what about you? What have you been listening to? I listen to the Partially Examined Life, which is a, it's a pretty long podcast, but it's, uh, it's about philosophy. It's, you know, roughly four guys. Sometimes they have guests, sometimes somebody's sick or whatever, but it's these four guys who uh, got their PhDs in philosophy at the University of Texas, but then didn't go into philosophy to make a living. So what they do is they read a text, and you can or, or, or not read the text at the same time they do, and they just discuss it. And it, it's sometimes at a pretty high level, I think. And they're, just, they're, they're sort of very engaging. Like the way I'm describing it, I think would discourage anybody from listening to it, <laughs> but in fact, they're very they're very engaging, and the ideas are really interesting, and I find it kind of addictive. Well, one thing I want to throw out there because it's been recommended to me twice this week is the Atlanta Journal Constitution's new podcast breakdown. They are basically riffing off of Serial very transparently about it and doing a true crime case that they've been reporting on on a podcast. I hear that it's very compelling. I'm going to check it out. I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying we should check it out and discuss it. So. Let's do that. All right, let's finish up with a feature that nobody on the internet has yet asked us to stop doing, so we'll keep doing it. That is the crime of the week. Okay, guys, uh, we are going to just move into, I don't want to call it lighter fare because it is scary, but at the same time, really interesting and compelling. I'd like to hear your thoughts in a minute or less on the big prison break that we've been hearing a lot about on the news. On June 6th, two men broke out of New York's Clinton Correctional Facility, Shawshank Redemption style, using power tools to cut through steel and stone and escape across catwalks over security walls. At the time of this taping, they have still not been found. Richard Matt and David Sweat, the trail has gone cold, but the focus is now on this female prison worker who allegedly had an affair with one, maybe both of the men, it's unclear, and who there was perhaps a plot to kill her husband, and he is perhaps now turning on her, maybe. Okay, that's a lot. Uh, Kevin, why don't you give us your thoughts on that story? Awesome, true crime book. Somebody is writing it, and um, they're going to make a, I'm going to say make a fortune, because we know they don't make a fortune, but you know the movie rights will be good, too. I'm really fascinated in this case, and I like to think that if this were a work of fiction, that we'd be cheering for the escapees. They would be the heroes in the case, because that whole thing... 
very Ocean's Eleven, very Shawshank Redemption, where you have this very elaborate, nonviolent escape plot. But these are bad guys. Well, of course they're bad guys. That's why they're in jail. But in the, you know, when Toby writes this book, they're going to be, it's going to be ambiguous, right, Toby? They're going to be, you know, yeah, there you go. Toby, what do you think about this prison break story? First, I'm surprised I haven't found him yet. Uh, Second, you know, we as a country just incarcerate so many people and so many people on like nonviolent drug crimes and, and things like that. These aren't those guys. I mean, these guys are violent criminals, uh, murderers. Yeah. I, I hope they get caught. I feel badly. I mean, the woman who helped them escape, uh, allegedly, I th- allegedly, I think also allegedly was seduced through conversations about Oprah and uh, the idea of helping two mass murderers escape to murder your husband doesn't doesn't seem like that great an idea to me. That's not you one of Oprah's favorite things. You get to escape, and you get to escape. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I I don't I mean it it's kind of in in equal parts interesting, kind of depressing, and you know you really hope they they catch these guys. And I just wonder if the fact that they haven't caught them might mean something happened to them after they left. I mean, I think they're just in the middle of the woods. I don't I don't think it's near like towns or metropolitan areas or something. Prisons I think never are. They're generally speaking, especially like in, in New York, they're usually in the middle of nowhere, which I think really speaks to the culture of the people who work there, that this is your whole life. There's like maybe not a lot going on where Clinton Correctional Facility is that your life then centers around the stories that inmates are telling you. What do you think, Laura, about the story? Well, I just want to talk a little bit about the amount of publicity and how far this story is spread. I was at my grandmother's 98th birthday party this weekend, and great aunt Peg, who's at least in her mid-90s, told me, I love these murderers. I love them. I hope they come to my house, to my basement. And her daughter said, mother. And she said, no, as she rubbed her little hands together. I will feed them candy until they're comfortable, and I will sneak upstairs and call 911 and catch them. So take that, murderers. Aunt Peg Bounty Hunter is on the case. <laughs> Aunt Peg Bounty Hunter sounds like the next great work of nonfiction true crime. Here's all the candy. Now, would you like to take a tour of my stove? <laughs> <laughs> it was. I told her. She sounded like Hansel and Gretel. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that seems like a wonderful note on which to end this particular episode. <laughs> uh, Toby Ball, you will find him on Twitter at Toby Ball and H. Thank you so much for joining us, Toby. Thank you. And true crime writer Laura Bricker, follow her at Laura. That's L A R A Bricker. Thanks so much for being part of the crew and for joining us today as well. Thank you. And finally, he's at Kevin P. Flynn, my husband and co author, Kevin Flynn. Thanks for letting me drive the car for a little bit, Rebecca. <laughs> and of course, I'm Rebecca Lavoy. You can find me on Twitter at Reb Lavoy. You can learn more about all the crime writers, including links to all of our books and the book list we talked about today at our website. The address is crimewriterson.com. You can also hear past episodes, find my email address if you want to send me a note. And yes, if you'd like, chip in a few bucks to keep this podcast downloading to your device. You can also leave review on iTunes if you listen there. It makes a big difference. We totally appreciate it. Thank you so much to the many of you who have left reviews, who've made contributions. We love you. One final note, thanks so much to Rocksteady Freddy for allowing us to use his version of Harlem Nocturne recorded by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble. It's a great theme song for our show. We did not get to the listener questions we'd hope to answer today. We will be releasing a supplemental episode soon in which we will answer your questions. I promise you that. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this has been Crime Writers on Serial. We will catch you later. 
so Toby, it's always your it's always your levels I'm that I'm most problem. concerned about. You are always the problem. You know why? Because you trail off at the end of your sentences. Yeah. And when you do that, you sometimes at the same time do like this. That's my mellow, laid back attitude. It is. What did you have for breakfast this morning? It, if I'm 45 degrees off, am I too far off? Axis a little too far here? off, yeah. And if I lean in, how You're about fine. if uh, even on the side? It's fine. That's omnidirectional. Okay. You're fine. You All do right. that. That's cardioid. It's not omnidirectional. All right. You're fine then. Oh, I had uh, I had a big bowl of uh, of uh, crackling oat bran. <laughs> that was me making the jerking off. Uh, so oh yeah, thanks, oat. thanks, podcast. <laughs> Just because I know more about microphones than you do. Yeah, you do a lot more. members save on meeting up with friends save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups that's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier plus members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods plus when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship start a show together with your included paramount plus subscription walmart plus members save on this plus so much more start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com paramount plus a central plan only separate registration required see walmart plus terms and conditions